My name is Lee Kaufman, and I'm going to read an excerpt from my memoir called The Dangerous Bride, a Memoir of Love, Gods, and Geography. This book tells the story of my failing at being non-monogamous, and this is the very start of the book. The night before I married Noah, in the oldest Australian synagogue in Ballarat, I kissed a girl dressed in a nurse's uniform. We were in a fetish club. The place hidden within St. Kilda's grunge felt unapologetically decadent, unashamedly European, with its low ceilings and decor featuring deeply cushioned velvet furniture, erotic books, rusty mirrors, and paintings of nuns in various stages of undress. It was difficult to tell whether you were in a library turned bordello or vice versa. I, who had harbored a librarian and libertine duality, like this ambiguity. The girl was a willow, a pretty redhead with serpentine lips. Her plastic uniform was dangerously short. Our kiss felt bubbly, but that may have been only the aftertaste of the two glasses of champagne I had gulped earlier for courage. For the first time in my three years with Noah, I was trying to live out the dream of love and telling commitment but also sexual freedom which I had cherished since adolescence. Right now, though, I wasn't being very successful at it. Our teeth clashed and she quickly pointed out it was my fault. I apologized, embarrassed, but tightened my grip on her slender back, again sinking my tongue into her otherness. I longed for the girl, not in a last unmarried night way, but as if to assure myself that why marriage was going to be a little wild, that it wouldn't rob me of the dreams of my youth. Paradoxically, the happier I felt with Noah, the more I wished for some debauchery in my life. Hi, I'm Mary Pomfret. Um, I currently uh, live in central Victoria and work there as a freelance writer and I'm about to read from my piece, Johnny and Me. Johnny and I got off the train to have a look around. He walked ahead of me, the back of his new white shirt that had looked so cool with his faded blue jeans was now a solid mass of black flies. I have never seen so many flies. So we stayed there for five days and five nights, stuck in Udnadatta, a little town in the desert, somewhere between Adelaide and Alice Springs. A couple who we christened Honey and Sweetie were in the cabin next door. They seemed to love fighting, especially at night when we would hear loud, angry voices, the odd thump, and then their noise would gradually fade into silence and we would drift off to sleep. Each evening in the dining carriage, Honey and Sweetie, who we figured must have been on their honeymoon, would always come and sit with us. Not that they seemed to want to talk to us, but maybe they just wanted witnesses to their game of mothers and fathers. Honey, will you pass me the sauce, please? Sweetie, would you like a bread roll? Honey, please don't bump me with your elbow. You're making me spill my soup. Sweetie, don't play with your hair at the table. Each night, after we had dinner with Honey and Sweetie and the hot sun went down, we would go and sit on the still warm tracks. An old railway fiddler had befriended us. 
He shared his whiskey with Johnny and gave me cigarettes. He called me Mama and played a battered old harmonica that looked as if it had been with him all his life. I've never been able to sing a note, but somehow I managed to belt out the lines of that Janis Joplin classic he played over and over. The old fettler, two crows to notice, and Johnny, too drunk to care, I screeched a tuneless rendition of me and Bobby McGee into the dark desert night. My memory of the five days is that it was just all one day. For me, being stuck at that time was a kind of respite. I didn't have to worry about finding work or how to buy food or anything much at all. Time just stood still. It was all the same day, just like Janice used to sing. But the day came to an end. When the conductor announced that they would be resuming the journey to Alice Springs the next morning, Johnny whooped, Thank God for that! That night, lying on the top bunk, I began to sob. What the hell's the matter? Johnny asked me. I miss my family. I miss my brothers and sisters so much. Johnny swore and left the cabin. Maybe he went out to have a final drink with the old fettler. I don't really know where he went. He was gone for over two hours. I could smell whiskey when he came back to the cabin and I had stopped crying by then. Early the next morning, before even the porter had been round with cups of tea, I woke to the rickety movement of the train. Johnny was going home. I was just going back. Hi, my name is C.B. Markle, and I'm talking about, I'd like to share Okay. Hi, my name is C.B. Marco, and I'm about to share a piece of my memoir on my child's cancer and my experience as a carer. Chunks of ice turned the brilliant green lawn into a magical winter wonderland in summer. Gazing from the safety of a second floor window with thick double glazed panes, the manicured grounds below gave us an unexpected and unforgettable Christmas day. Melbourne, recently awarded the most livable city in the world, unveiled its brand new Royal Children's Hospital. It was a beautifully designed billion-dollar hospital, and in the cancer ward, my 19-month-old daughter and I were among its first occupants. We were cocooned inside an isolation room which had its own ventilation and environmental controls, and the pressurized door was shut tight. As I watched my daughter pressed her tiny upturned nose on the window pane, my breath tightened. Her hair was thinner today. I turned my gaze down on the padded floor. Clumps of black strands were strewn about. I'd rather forget that she vomited what little lunch she ate today or the stench of her runny poo. As my gut roiled from the memory, I pushed the thoughts away and fought back the tears.
today wasn't the time to feel. Perhaps later. We still had a long way to go. This was just the second of six rounds of chemotherapy after all. By the end of the cancer treatment, I would be desensitized to the heart-wrenching smells, sights, and sounds of its side effects. Looking up at her IV pole, there were bags of red blood cells and platelets hanging upside down, coursing through her intravenous line. Her blood counts were dangerously low from her, gear, from her chemotherapy, and the deadly stomach bug she had been battling. Well, my daughter, now neutropenic, had lost so much weight. Her once chubby arms and legs that rolled with cherubic folds of fat were now thin and pale. In my adult state, I have yet to fully grasp all different blood components. Leukemia, after all, is the cancer of the blood. My name is Lian Lo, and my piece is called Malaysia's Chinese Princess. When I was little, I grew up with Malacca history, Hang Li Po and her 500 handmaidens, the beautiful Chinese princess who sailed into the Straits of Malacca, led by the legendary Muslim, Mongol, Arab eunuch, Admiral Cheng Ho. The fairy tale royal wedding between a Chinese princess and a Malay sultan. According to the legend, Hang Li Po and her handmaidens' remains are buried somewhere in Bukit China, or Chinese Hill said to be the largest Chinese cemetery outside of China. But over a hot meal of oyster omelette, curry fish head and hot tea on plastic furniture, a Chinese historian tells me she's not real. How can she be real? If you look up her surname Hung, it doesn't relate back to any of the Chinese emperors. She must be a relative but not a princess. Do you think the giant Chinese dynasty would care about the puny Malaysian kingdom? I don't think so. It's the Malaysian way of making our history more important than it is. But how can that be, I wonder? This fabled Chinese princess, not real. She's in Malaysia's history books and museums. The oldest water well in Malaysia, built in 1459, was named after her and it's located at the foot of Bukit China. However, in a country where the line between fiction and reality depends on who holds the checkbook, anything is possible. The same Malaccan historian tells me that Malacca is drawn on a whiteboard with an erasable marker where nothing is permanent and everything is for sale. That, in the date of the night, during the Deepa Valley public holiday, when no protesters were around, property developers dug up her ancestors' grave and many others along Bukit China. Their remains now reburied, location unknown. The table was bloody heavy. I watched Paul, my boyfriend, and the table's new owner flip it awkwardly onto its back 
and then, groaning, lift and tie it onto the little blue car parked on the street outside our house. The second-hand dealers had been circling what had been my family home since 6am, waiting for us to drag out our potential treasures. They were growing restless, impatient. No doubt there were other sales they were itching to get to. The dining table wasn't meant to be sold. It was meant to be a display surface only, offering for sale those things no longer wanted. When we were asked, how much for the table, Paul talked me into it, forcing a choice. Like he did many things, so often to my regret. He was tall, olive-skinned, persuasive. It's too big. We can use the money for our new place. I also heard my dad's voice in my head. The table's worth so much. It's so beautiful. How can you let it go? The dealers picked through the prints in dated frames, the mismatched forks, the Ian Fleming books, the mementos of family trips, teaspoons from Lucerne, glasses from Munich, and left behind the faux crystal punch bowl with its matching serving spoon, scornful. It was solid, that dining room table, a dark hardwood with squared edges and no curves. It sat six with its matching wooden chairs, dark leather stretched across each seat and back held tight with large round copper studs. The table was large enough for mum and dad's dinner parties with their beef wellington and cassata and after dinner mince but still seated us four comfortably. Me, my younger brother, mum and dad. Sometimes I wondered if I should set an extra place each night but the daily reminder of her absence would have been too much to bear. What the scavengers didn't realise was that this garage sale was the final part of the packing up of my family home. The family home my little sister had only briefly spent time in and, after the accident, never returned to. The family home my parents and brother had moved to Queensland from, leaving me at 22 with a home empty of family but full of memories and dust, with a boyfriend who I'd move out with, love and then leave, hand and heart broken, but beating fiercely still. Uh, I'm Kelly and this is my story, Playground Politics. The last time I set foot in a school playground, I was arrested for making mud pies in a kindergarten on the eve of the millennium, back when my liver was in its 20s. As the school year began more than a decade later, here I was standing near the play equipment at an inner city primary school with my newish fella Pete, during his eldest son's first week of prep. On the monkey bars in front of us, little girls changed direction collectively like a swarm of Nepali honeybees. A haggard-looking dad tethered a lassie dog outside the fence. A woman held the gate open for a tangle of kids and clunky scooters. Over near a low row of bubblers, a child sobbed in panda leggings. Hair was wild on top of heads or clamped under out-of-context bike helmets, faces crinkled from sleep or lack of it. One woman's shirt, skirt was only half zipped up, like disaster struck when she was dressing herself and others. These people barely had it together. There were hundreds of kids in the playground, all waist high, and they all looked exactly like Charlie. From next week, I would drop him at school every Monday morning, but if I couldn't find him on the play equipment, how could I see him safely to his classroom? I have absolutely no idea which one is your kid, I said, leaning into Pete. He pointed to the climbing frame where Charlie came into focus. I felt panic rise in me along with a familiar fear that I might be required to talk to other people, 
and even more terrifying, over the coming years I would probably have to make acquaintances or worse, friends with other parents, maybe even coordinate playdates. In the meantime, I hid, again, I hid behind Pete. A woman with a big smile came over to us. They grow up so fast, she said, with a mixture of pride and disbelief. I had no idea how quickly they grew up, which how much effort it took to get them to this point. Charlie was, effectively, a new friend. Which one's yours? Uh, I don't have one, I said. I mean, I do, but I don't, but uh, Pete does, but I don't. I'm just a, I'm an interloper, I said. She switched her gaze to Pete. Charlie's upside down on the climbing frame, he said. Straightforward, accurate, parental. We studied Charlie. He looked adorable with his swathe of upside down hair, like sandy fairy floss. I felt like a fraud. Shattered by every uncomfortable interaction I ever had at school, I stepped backwards into a nearby four-square game and got thumped in the thigh with a down ball. They were nice enough about it, those eight-year-olds, but as I tried to get out of their way, I tripped on a knot of school bags that were surely too big for small humans. The bell rang over a tinny PA. Kids broke out of their clusters and ran. So much running. Rivulets of children wound towards their classroom with holiday-fresh teachers in the lead. I clung to Pete and hoped I wouldn't be swept away. Hi, um, my name's Carla and this is a small piece from my yet-to-be-published memoir. Pissing into a laundry bucket was not how I imagined my 30s would be, but there I was, bare-arsed, teetering on the bony rim, one knee squat, the other to the ground. I could have been genuflecting. My mother, tired and emptied of consolations, gripped my arm tighter to support me as urine rattled about in the bucket. In the dim light of my bed lamp, the room decorated in three types of plywood felt even more compact. As my thighs burned with the effort of staying upright, I imagined the whole world peering in from the blackness outside my window to witness this final act of my failed life. At the age of 32, I'd managed to reverse my life into a second infancy. My days were spent coiled and motionless in bed. My mother brought me food every two hours or I cried out. On this day, I was so frail I couldn't walk the seven metres to the toilet, so my mother brought me a makeshift potty. I raced it to the toilet paper to suspend some of my self-loathing. Before chronic fatigue syndrome, this is how I account for my life now, before and after the onset of my condition, I was indefatigable. Riding a tsunami of pure adrenaline, I spent my 20s on the cusp of or in the midst of ongoing change. Changing jobs, houses, lovers, friends, spiritual preferences, staying one step ahead of what I feared most, something that I did not yet know or understand. I had a sense that it was close, though, that it would finally catch up with me once I finally stopped. I wasn't always like this, irritable, anxious to keep moving at a pace that left some part of me behind. I have fond memories as a teenager of meandering a winding kilometre to the river with our German shepherd Sheba, along a road hedged with sweet-smelling tobacco and golden-orbed sunflowers. The chorus of crickets in the summertime heat, muffled only by slicing through the cool, dark river where I would fend off an excited Sheba from swimming too close and drowning me. It's true that I felt bored much of the time growing up in a small town of Myrtleford in northeast Victoria. 
but there was a stillness, a calm in the boredom that stretched between the blue light discos and local rodeo, which constituted happenings in rural life. But something changed. At the age of 20, under the guise of falling in love, I suffered a nervous breakdown. Hi, I'm Tom, and this is an extract from my memoir. When I was nine years old, I met Jesus Christ. He was standing by a makeshift volleyball court, calling gentle encouragement to a crew of committed competitors. Shorter than I'd imagined, his hairline had receded, giving his face a long, drawn appearance. When he moved, it was as if he were underwater, every action slow and deliberate. Jesus wore white Reebok boots, black silky Adidas pants and a pale blue t-shirt. He introduced himself to me as Jesus, but I later overheard a nurse call him Tim. He didn't correct her. Lydia was probably in her early 40s when I met her. She had a white scar on the right side of her forehead that had once been used as a doorway to her disease. She wore her hair in mousy pigtails, tied at each end with coloured ribbons, and spoke in quick, enthusiastic sentences that rarely seemed to have a point. I liked Lydia. We played hide-and-seek in the gardens of the hospital, and she said I was a good hider. When it was her turn to hide, I always found her in the spot I at last hid. Mum said that the doctors took a piece of Lydia's brain. When I asked why, Mum said that Lydia had once been very sad, and that the doctors had taken the part of the brain that caused it. Can she still cry? Mum laughed and squeezed my shoulder. I don't think she ever needs to. Annette was short, not much taller than me, and made smaller by a permanent hunch and the way she kept her hands clasped below her breast. She wore light turtleneck skivvies and thick ankle-length skirts, and her head moved in quick avian sweeps when there was conversation nearby. She didn't speak much, though, tending to only respond in yeses and noes, but Mum said she was fond of a joke so I told her the best one I knew. Knock, knock. Who is it? She said. Ipe. Ipoo. We both waited in silence. Her for the punchline and me for her to realise she'd already delivered it. Ipoo, she said again. I giggled. That's rude, she said, finally getting it. That's rude, that is. Franny was a large woman who at times appeared to be contemplating a great puzzle. When she spoke, there was a slur of sedation in her voice, but there was also something defiantly impervious to the medication. She could instantly mobilise her large frame when she perceived a threat or a challenge, a stray scream from the depths of the wards, a squabble between residents over a cigarette. Pink scars on her face and wrists testified to recent violence, white roots and half-moons of red nail polish to a temporary reprieve of vanity. She was always surrounded by other patients, and prone to spontaneous renditions of Henry Lawson or Banjo Patterson. Inside those walls, she was a mother to the mad and the broken people. Outside, she was my mother. Hi, I'm Alexis, and this is my memoir piece. After half a year of misdiagnoses, I have an appointment to see a gastroenterologist at the military hospital on the other side of Puebla. I tell him that my ex-boyfriend, a doctor in Sydney, diagnosed me with gallstones via MSN Messenger while I was recovering from another night of attacks. I tell him that I'd like to get an ultrasound and then my gallbladder removed, please, and I'm available whenever to have the procedure. He raises his eyebrows at me across his hefty wooden desk. We'll wait and see whether the ultrasound even shows gallstones, he says. I'm getting married in two weeks, I add, so it'd be great to get it over with by then. 
All I've consumed in the last 12 hours is water and jelly, most of which I've vomited up. This counts as fasting, so I'm given a slot with the ultrasound guy for the evening. With four hours to kill, I think about going back to Kike's mum's place or hanging out at a Starbucks, and then it clicks. I feel for the keys to my new place in my backpack and find them in the bottom corner. I slip my finger through the key ring. I catch the Crayamadero bus back towards school, but get off halfway at my soon-to-be bus stop. I use the overpass, not yet familiar enough with the circuitos traffic patterns to have the guts to run across the road, and go into the upmarket supermarket of the Walmart family, where only the richest Mexicans shop. Past the imported biscuits and the aisles of soft drink. I've been permitted juice, water and jelly, so I splurge on the fanciest orange juice. In the flat, I perch on the bare mattress and sip from the bottle. The juice is sweet and thick with pulp that I hope won't break the fast and jeopardise the procedure. Mum's old 70s suitcase is standing against the wall, and energised, I open it up. It's packed full with engagement and wedding presents, mostly Australiana-themed. I open packaging and cut off tags and arrange things where they might go when this becomes our home. I unbutton the vest of my teaching uniform, untuck my blouse and throw open the windows. The breeze is cool and fragrant, no river stench today. I am alone that afternoon, alone but not lonely. I've lived my whole life with my family, with other families, in dorms and in share houses. Now I have the only keys to my place and I've locked myself in for the afternoon. No one is going to just drop by and tell me how I'm doing everything wrong. And anyway, nesting I can manage on my own. I don't need a translator or a local to give me insider information. I place a mounted photo print of Sydney Harbour on the hutch, hang a tea towel on the oven handle, square a box of loose-leaf tea on the kitchen ledge, heart-bursting. Kike is at work, but I don't need him. For a change, I don't need him. Hi, my name is Angela Serrano, and this is my memoir. Vishwala Zimboshka's writing resume is a poem that I return to when my words fail me. The following lines always hit where it hurt. Regardless of the length of a life, a resume is best kept short. Concise, well-chosen facts are the rigueur. Landscapes replaced by addresses, shaky memories give way to unshakable dates. Of all your loves, mention only the marriage. Write as if you'd never talk to yourself, and always keep yourself at arm's length. Of all your loves, mention only the marriage. I was born out of wedlock to a father 25 years older than my mom. I was an illegitimate child, the fourth of my dad's eight children, only two of whom were with his wife. Illegitimate children don't always get their father's surnames in the Philippines. I was lucky my dad signed my birth certificate to his, and I've kept it even though I'm married now. My father flitted in and out of my childhood home but rarely stayed the night. Growing up, I thought this was normal. It was only when I slept over at friends' houses that I saw that it was normal for fathers to spend their evening hours with their families, to be home in time for dinner, and not step out until the morning. Unlike Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, 
I didn't know I was a bastard until I was 19, when I was too full of questions and my mother finally relented. That life-changing discovery happened a year after a life-changing surgery. My mom and dad were obsessed with fixing my nose, which to them was too flat, too shapeless, too Filipino. I was forced to undergo rhinoplasty months before I turned 18. In revenge, I cut off my hair and joined the Air Force. Most Australians don't know that about me, that I was in the Air Force, or that I have silicone in my nose. Many Australians do know that my boobs are real, having seen them from multiple angles during life during classes, where I've been the model. Being a fine art model after serving in the Air Force may seem an unlikely career progression, but both are forms of physical labor, and success in both fields as a woman relies on an ability to perform and reimagine many roles, leader, follower, source of inspiration, fulfiller of obligations, aggressive subject, eroticized object. The original hipster Paolo Coelho, the author of The Alchemist, wrote that all love stories are the same. I think all stories about physical labor, about how we push back at grief and loss with our bodies, are but for the minutest of details, not especially different. Extraterrestrial occupies a vast, hollow space. It can tap the universal sorrow, the ephemeral, the existential, and take control of it, shattering all sense of normalcy. Abstract and remote from any concrete experience, it breaks open the unbreakable, then makes it whole again. And out of this shatteredness, joy emerges, the divine. When I sing... I am possessed, inhabited. Singing is the cry, higher than any pitch audible to the human ear, of something living in the moment, living deep inside of me. I touch the supernatural, free from the awareness of death. Singing, so transcendental and so intense it hurts. And once you've transcended to this place, everything else in the world is common in comparison. I started my first memoir while living on the corner of crack and murder in Hollywood. I had money in the bank, but no intention to work. So I started squatting to stretch out my savings. Well, can I even call them savings? Still to this day, I have never saved a penny. It was money gained from experiences earned in an earthquake-ravaged, abandoned building on the corner of Hollywood and Whitley. And it was pink. Pink. And built in the 1920s, the building exuded romance. The gold plaques at the pillared entrance were engraved with the names of previous tenants, literary and talent agents, who probably lunched in the booths at nearby Musso and Frank's Grill while cutting deals with big-name stars. The large rooms at the front of the building were so impacted by the 1994 quakes that they were uninhabitable to anything but pigeons. And the pigeons lived in celebrated style, striding around the puckery floors with confidence, coming and going as they pleased. The sunken walls were full of vertical cracks, omitting slightly nauseating mineral gases, and the glass from the window still lay broken on the floor, but you could see the flagship store of Fredericks of Hollywood, also vibrant pink. 
Its scripted Fredericks of Hollywood signs strongly visible. And Frederick, the man who invented the much-loved push-up bra. And you could take in the action on the street below, the star-lined Hollywood Boulevard, closest thing there was to being in Manhattan in Los Angeles. I didn't see it as the Walk of Fame. I was blind to the tourists. All I could see was a street full of gangsters, pimps and crack whores, homeless punks and skunks that smelled better than a lot of them. I loved the smell of skunk and it sometimes wafted up into my apartment for the windows were always open. I lived on the fourth floor, the smaller room at the back and it was still relatively intact.